Prime members, you can listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. I think you still have lots of secrets. Sure, yes. He's the highest ranking defector from North Korea in decades. And you're about to hear why he thinks the situation is as dangerous as it has ever been. The American general in charge of Korea would agree with that and told us how the U.S. would respond to Kim Jong-un's use of nuclear weapons. It will be met with an effective and overwhelming response. Wipe North Korea off the map. Whatever overwhelms you. How many Silicon Valley insiders are there speaking out like you are? Not that many. Tristan Harris was a Google product manager and is one of the only Silicon Valley insiders to publicly question the engineering behind our smartphones, apps, and social media platforms. He says they're built to be addictive and warns of long-term consequences for us and our families. Never before in history have a handful of people at a handful of technology companies, shaped how a billion people think and feel every day with the choices they make about these screens. Bruno Mars may be the hardest working man in show business. Guess who's back again? And when you hear how he grew up, you'll understand why this throwback never takes anything for granted. This, right this was your house? I just really care about what people see. I want them to know that I'm, I'm working hard for this. The artists I look up to, like, you know, Michael, Prince, James Brown, they're not phoning it in. They're going up there to murder anybody that performs after them or performs before them. I'm Steve Croft. I'm Leslie Stahl. I'm Bill Whitaker. I'm Anderson Cooper. I'm Lara Logan. I'm Scott Pelley. Those stories tonight on 60 Minutes. 
Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. North Korea continues to test missile after missile, raising tensions with the United States. Kim Jong-un has promised to test an intercontinental ballistic missile. Such a weapon could eventually carry a nuclear warhead and threaten American cities. U.S. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis called that possibility and the missiles Kim has aimed at South Korea, quote, a clear and present danger to the world. As we first reported in February, we went to South Korea and saw how tense the situation has become. We got two important perspectives from the commander of the 28,000 American troops there and the highest-ranking North Korean to defect in decades. He told us Kim's missile program is part of an obsession with the survival of his regime. I've been uh, in Seoul for uh, six months, and to be honest, you know, I was never, you know, public until now. We went for an evening out in Seoul with Young Ho. He was North Korea's deputy ambassador in London before he defected in August. <laughs> First time on the subway. Yes, that's right. A defection by someone of his rank is extremely rare. We had to be stand. This was the first time he had walked about in public. Just off camera, six bodyguards watched his every move as we made our way down one of the busiest shopping streets in Asia. North Korea has assassinated defectors in Seoul. In order to prevent more possible defections from North Korea, I think Kim Jong-un may do anything. You know kill you. Of course, why not? The man who could order an assassination is Kim Jong-un. The dictator is the third member of the Kim family to rule North Korea. They have controlled the impoverished country with an iron-clad fist for 70 years. This missile test was in February. Kim devotes a quarter of his country's economy to weapons like this and his million-man army despite widespread food shortages. Kim Jong-un strongly believes that once he possesses ICBM, then he can easily uh, scare off uh, America. Right now, how dangerous is North Korea to the stability of South Korea and uh, as a threat to the United States? Kim Jong-un's capability to wreak harm not only to America but also South Korea and the world should not be underestimated. During his five years in power, Kim Jong-un has expanded North Korea's nuclear arsenal despite international sanctions that have brought his country's economy to its knees. Electricity is scarce. From space, North Korea is a black hole. That's it, wedged between the shining lights of South Korea and China to the north. Tay said he was living a comfortable life here at the North Korean embassy in London before he fled with his wife and two grown sons. The safety is guaranteed by the government. His job in London was to spread North Korean propaganda and report back on his colleagues. You all live together under one roof? Yes. So you could keep an eye on each other? Keep an eye on each other, control each other, and even spy on each other. 
But Tay said he lost all faith in the regime when Kim Jong-un killed his own uncle in 2013 and executed dozens of perceived enemies, including diplomats. I've seen tape of you giving speeches yes. in London. You're very convincing. You, you, you seem to be a true believer yourself. Uh, uh, if I... Uh, show any sign of hesitation, then I would be, you know, what sent to, to I would be sent to prison camps. So my whole family's life will be jeopardized. Tay said there was one big obstacle to his defection. All North Korean diplomats are forced to leave one of their children back in Pyongyang as a hostage, you see. As a hostage? Yes. When my children grow up... His break came when that policy unexpectedly changed, and Tay's oldest son was allowed to join the family in London. They all agreed to defect. He would not give us the details of his escape and who helped, but we know he was kept in a safe house by South Korean intelligence agents and questioned for more than three months. He said it was too dangerous for us to meet his family. I've been talking to you for a couple of days now. You come from a secretive place. Yes. But I think you still have lots of secrets. Sure, yes. How do we know that what he is telling us mm is the truth mm. and not just self-serving. Mm. You know, when a defector makes a decision to jump ship, he is doing it at a, at a huge cost. His co-workers, relatives, in-laws will be purged or killed. Mm -hmm. Chung Min Lee was South Korea's ambassador for national security until last year. He said looks here can be deceiving. The risk of war today is exceptionally high. I think most Americans right now would see this as a holdover from the Cold War. Mm -hmm. But it seems to be quite hot That's when right. you're here. This is the only place on the entire planet where you have nearly a million forces on both sides standing ready to fight a war in basically a nanosecond. And who is there right in the middle of this? It's basically the U.S. forces. If there is war, this is where the big fight will take place. Lee helped shape Seoul's policy toward North Korea. He went with us to Panmunjom, the village in the two-and-a-half-mile-wide demilitarized zone that separates North and South Korea. As we got closer, Seoul's sprawl gave way to military checkpoints. The agreement that suspended the Korean War was signed here, but there's still no peace treaty. The war began when the Communist North invaded in 1950. 34,000 Americans were killed in what amounted to a stalemate. So this is the longest war on paper since World War II. So we are still technically in a state of war. Today, both sides still stare each other down. That's North Korea right there, that building just 100 yards away. We were told to avoid sudden movements that could be interpreted as threatening. It wasn't long before North Korean soldiers took an interest in all the activity. So we went inside a negotiation hut that straddles the border. 
What is right behind right the door? Right behind the door is basically from there on, this, this is, since this is North Korea, once you go out, that's it. We have no jurisdiction on that side of, of the door. So if I were to walk out that door, that's it. I'm in the hands of North Korea. That's true. Let's stay on this side. Let's stay on this side. <laughs> it was all surreal. This part of the DMZ closest to Seoul had the feel of a Cold War theme park, complete with a fake village on the North Korean side built to impress the South. And in case you missed the point, loudspeakers blared propaganda. Martial songs praising Kim Jong-un. A few miles away, tourists crowded an observation deck, snapping photos with troops, cardboard cutouts, and the real ones. What the visitors could not see on the other side of those mountains are 10,000 artillery pieces the North Korean military has aimed at Seoul, all of which could reach the 28 million people in and around the South Korean capital. U.S. war planners estimate 500,000 people could be killed in a second Korean war. Is there any other metropolitan area on Earth this vulnerable? Uh, certainly nothing that approaches Seoul in terms of the, the size, the, the density of the population. There's nothing like it. U.S. Air Force General James Slife flew with us over the city. It's just 30 miles from the DMZ. We landed at Osan Air Base, where Korean airmen and their American colleagues monitor all activity north of the DMZ. For security, they shut off the giant video displays right before we came in. This facility is among the first to detect North Korean missile launches. You're like on a war footing all the time here. That's right. This is truly one of those places where the best way to prevent a war is being ready for a war. The North's latest missile tests used a new type of solid fuel engine and were fired from mobile launchers, making them quick to deploy and difficult for U.S. satellites to detect in real time. With the development of ballistic missiles, with the development of nuclear weapons, things here have a, have a, a, a tension that you can feel in the air as you, as you move around uh, places like this. We wanted to talk to the general who leads U.S. forces in Korea and would command Korean troops in the event of a war. He asked to meet us at Guard Post 4. It's a citadel on critical high ground at the end of a road lined with landmines. We were the first American news crew allowed in. This was no Cold War theme park. Body armor was required, and artillery was on standby in the event we came under fire. Vince Hello, Brooks. General. Nice How to are see you? you. Very nice to meet you. All right. General Vincent Brooks has commanded U.S. forces fighting in Iraq and Afghanistan. I don't think people at home know how tense this line is. What it takes to go from the condition we're in at this moment to hostilities again is literally the matter of a decision on North Korea's side to say fire. And on top of this, we have the missile capability that's been developed. Uh, over 120 missiles fired just in the time of Kim Jong-un alone. So now they're talking about ICBMs that might be able to reach the west coast of the United States. How do you stop them from taking that next step? 
North Korea is responsible for the direction that the region is going. It is responsible for the conditions of instability that are starting to arise. It has to take responsibility for that and stop. His country is poor. His people are starving. What is it that he wants? Survival. Survival. Kim Jong-un is now recognized as a global threat. U.S. intelligence estimates he has at least 10 nuclear weapons. If the U.S. decided it had no choice but to launch a preemptive strike on an ICBM test site, it could trigger the unthinkable. If North Korea uses nuclear weapons, it will be met with an effective and overwhelming response. And they can take it, take it to the bank. We make that same point to our, our allies and partners like the Republic of Korea, like Japan. Effective and overwhelming response. O effective and overwhelming response. Wipe North Korea off the map. Whatever overwhelms you. That warning rang in our ears as we returned to Seoul and met one last time with defector Young ho We asked about his brother and sister still in North Korea. What do you think has happened to them? They will be sent to prison camps. That is what I'm absolutely sure. Does that weigh on you? Of course, yes. I cannot uh, get rid of that kind of uh, nightmare every night of uh, seeing my brother and sister in prison camps. You know. Tay told us he believes he can help topple the North Korean regime by encouraging other defections and speaking out. During the campaign, President Trump called Kim Jong-un a maniac. His language has been much more careful since the latest missile tests. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Have you ever wondered if all those people you see staring intently at their smartphones nearly everywhere and at all times are addicted to them? According to a former Google product manager you're about to hear from, Silicon Valley is engineering your phone, apps, and social media to get you hooked. As we first reported in April, he's one of the few tech insiders to publicly acknowledge that the companies responsible for programming your phones are working hard to get you to feel the need to check in constantly. Some programmers call it brain hacking, and the tech world would probably prefer you didn't hear about it. But Tristan Harris openly questions the long-term consequences of it all. And we think it's worth putting down your phone to listen. This thing is a slot machine. How is that a slot machine? Well, every time I check my phone, I'm playing the slot machine to see what did I get. This is one way to um, hijack people's minds and create a habit, to form a habit. What you do is you make it so when someone pulls a lever, sometimes they get a reward, an exciting reward. And it turns out that this design technique can be embedded inside of all these products. The rewards Harris is talking about are a big part of what makes smartphones so appealing. The chance of getting likes on Facebook and Instagram, cute emojis and text messages, and new followers on Twitter. There's a whole playbook of techniques that get used to get you using for the product for as long as possible. Yeah, what, what, are, what kind of techniques are used? So Snapchat's the most popular uh, messaging service for teenagers, and they invented this feature called Streaks, which shows the number of days in a row that you've sent a message back and forth with someone. 
So now you can say, well, what's the big deal here? Well, the problem is that kids feel like, well, now I don't want to lose my streak. But it turns out that kids actually, when they go on vacation, are so stressed about their streak that they actually give their password to like five other kids to keep their streaks going on their behalf. And so you could ask, when, when these features are being designed, are they designed to most help people live their life? Or are they being designed because they're best at hooking people into using the product? Is, is Silicon Valley programming apps or are they programming people? Inadvertently, whether they want to or not, they're shaping the thoughts and feelings and actions of, of people. They are programming people. They, there's always this narrative that technology is neutral and it's up to us to choose how we use it. This is just not true. Technology is not neutral. It's not neutral. They want you to use it in particular ways and for long periods of time because that's how they make their money. It's rare for a tech insider to be so blunt. But Tristan Harris believes someone needs to be. A few years ago, he was living the Silicon Valley dream. He dropped out of a master's program at Stanford University to start a software company. Four years later, Google bought him out and hired him as a product manager. It was while working there, he started to feel overwhelmed. Honestly, I was just bombarded in email and calendar invitations and just the overload of what it's like to work a place like Google. And I was asking when is all of this adding up to like an actual benefit to my life? And I ended up making this presentation. It was kind of a manifesto. And it basically said, you know, look, never before in history have a handful of people at a handful of technology companies shaped how a billion people think and feel every day with the choices they make about these screens. His 144-page presentation argued that the constant distractions of apps and emails are weakening our relationships to each other and destroying our kids' ability to focus. It was widely read inside Google and caught the eye of one of the founders, Larry Page. But Harris told us it didn't lead to any changes, and after three years, he quit. And it's not because anyone is evil or has bad intentions. It's because the game is getting attention at all costs. And the problem is it becomes this race to the bottom of the brainstem where if I go lower on the brainstem to get you, you know, using my product, I win, but it doesn't end up in the world we want to live in. We don't end up feeling good about how we're using all this stuff. You, you call this a race to the bottom of the brainstem. It's a race to the most primitive emotions we have, fear, anxiety, loneliness, yeah. all these things. Absolutely. And that, that's, again, because in the race for attention, I have to do whatever works. It absolutely wants one thing, which is your attention. Now he travels the country trying to convince programmers and anyone else who will listen that the business model of tech companies needs to change. He wants products designed to make the best use of our time, not just grab our attention. Do you think parents understand the, the complexities of what their kids are dealing with when they're dealing with their, their phone, dealing with apps and social media? No, and I think this is really important um, because there's a narrative that, oh, I guess they're just doing this like we used to gossip on the phone. But what this misses is that your telephone in the 1970s didn't have a thousand engineers on the other side of the telephone who were redesigning it to work with other telephones and then updating the way your telephone worked every day to be more and more persuasive. That was not true in the 1970s. How many Silicon Valley insiders are there speaking out like you are? Not that many. We reached out to the biggest tech firms, but none would speak on the record, and some didn't even return our phone call. Most tech companies say their priority is improving user experience, 
something they call engagement. But they remain secretive about what they do to keep people glued to their screens. So we went to Venice, California, where the bodybuilders on the beach are being muscled out by small companies that specialize in what Ramsey Brown calls brain hacking. A computer programmer who now understands how the brain works knows how to write code that will get the brain to do certain things. Yes, it is. Ramsey Brown studied neuroscience before co-founding Dopamine Labs, a startup crammed into a garage. The company is named after the dopamine molecule in our brains that aids in the creation of desire and pleasure. Brown and his colleagues write computer code for apps used by fitness companies and financial firms. The programs are designed to provoke a neurological response. You're trying to figure out how to get people coming back. To when should I make you feel a little extra awesome to get you to come back into the app longer? The computer code he creates finds the best moments to give you one of those rewards, which have no actual value. But Brown says trigger your brain to make you want more. For example, on Instagram, he told us sometimes those likes come in a sudden rush. They're holding some of them back for you to let you know later in a big burst. Like, hey... Here's the 30 likes we didn't mention from a little while ago. So the, all of a sudden why you get a big moment? burst of likes. Yeah, but why that moment? There's some algorithm somewhere that predicted, hey, for this user right now, who's experimental subject 79B3 in experiment 231, we think we can see an improvement in his behavior if you give it to him in this, bit, in this burst instead of that burst. When Brown says experiments, he's talking generally about the millions of computer calculations being used every moment by his company and others to constantly tweak your online experience and make you come back for more. You're a part of a controlled set of experiments that are happening in real time across you and millions of other people. We're guinea pigs. You're guinea pigs. You're guinea pigs in the box, pushing the button and sometimes getting the likes. <laughs> and they're doing this to keep you in there. The longer we look at our screens, the more data companies collect about us and the more ads we see. Ad spending on social media has doubled in just two years to more than $31 billion. You don't pay for Facebook. Advertisers pay for Facebook. You get to use it for free because your eyeballs are what's being sold there. So That's an interesting feel... way to look at that, that you're not the customer for Facebook. You're not the customer. You don't send a check to Facebook, but Coca-Cola does. Brown says there's a reason texts and Facebook use a continuous scroll because it's a proven way to keep you searching longer. You spend half your time on Facebook just scrolling to find one good piece worth looking at. It's happening because they are engineered to become addictive. You're almost saying like there's an addiction code. Yeah, that is the case. The, since we've figured out, to some extent, how these pieces of the brain that handle addiction are working, people have figured out how to juice them further and how to bake that information into apps. Dinner table could be a technology-free zone. While Brown is tapping into the power of dopamine, psychologist Larry Rosen and his team at California State University, Dominguez Hills, are researching the effect technology has on our anxiety levels. We're looking at the impact of technology through the brain. Rosen told us when you put your phone down, your brain signals your adrenal gland to produce a burst of a hormone called cortisol, which has an evolutionary purpose. Cortisol triggers a fight-or-flight response to danger. How does cortisol relate to a mobile device, a phone? What we find is the typical person checks their phone every 15 minutes or less, and half of the time they check their phone, there's no alert, no notification. It's coming from inside their head telling them, gee, I haven't checked in Facebook in a while. I haven't checked on this Twitter feed for a while. I wonder if somebody commented on my Instagram post. That then generates cortisol, and it starts to make you anxious, and eventually your goal is to get rid of that anxiety, so you check in. 
So the same hormone that made primitive man anxious and hyper-aware of his surroundings to keep him from being eaten by lions is today compelling Rosen students and all of us to continually peek at our phones to relieve our anxiety. When you put the phone down, you don't shut off your brain. You just put the phone down. Can I be honest with you right now? I haven't paid attention to what you're saying because I just realized my phone is right down by my right foot and I haven't checked it in like 10 minutes. And it makes you anxious. I'm a little anxious. Yes. We found out just how anxious in this experiment conducted by Rosen's research colleague, Nancy Cheever. So the first thing I'm going to do is apply these electrodes to your fingers. While I watched a video, a computer tracked minute changes in my heart rate and perspiration. What I didn't know was that Cheever was sending text messages to my phone, which was just out of reach. Every time a text notification went off, the blue line spiked, indicating anxiety caused in part by the release of cortisol. Oh, that one is, yeah, that's a huge spike right there. And if you can imagine what that's doing to your body, Mm. every time you get a text message, you you probably can't even feel it, right? Right. Because it's it's such a, um, it's a small amount of of arousal. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Their research suggests our phones are keeping us in a continual state of anxiety in which the only antidote is the phone. Is it known what the impact of all this technology use is? Absolutely not. It's too soon. We're all part of this big experiment. What is this doing to a young mind, a teenager? Well, there's some projects going on where they're they're actually scanning teenagers' brains over a 20-year period and looking to see what kind of changes they're finding. Here's the reality. Corporations and creators of content have, since the beginning of time, wanted to make their content as engaging as possible. Gabe Zickerman has worked with dozens of companies, including Apple and CBS, to make their online products more irresistible. He's best known in Silicon Valley for his expertise in something called gamification, using techniques from video games to insert fun and competition into almost everything on your smartphone. So one of the interesting things about gamification and other engaging technologies is at the same time as we can argue that the neuroscience is being used to create dependent behavior, those same techniques are being used to get people to work out, you know, using their Fitbit. So all of these technologies, all of the techniques for engagement can be used for good or can be used for bad. Zickerman is now working on software called Onward, designed to break users' bad habits. It'll track a person's activity and can recommend they do something else when they're spending too much time online. I think creators have to be liberated to make their content as good as possible. They sh- they the, idea be- that, the idea that a tech company is not going to try to make their product as persuasive, as engaging as possible, you're just saying that's, that's not going to happen. Asking tech companies, asking content creators to be less good at what they do feels like a ridiculous ask. It feels impossible. And also, it's very anti-capitalistic. This isn't the system that we live in. Ramsey Brown and his garage startup Dopamine Labs made a habit-breaking app as well. It's called Space, and it creates a 12-second delay, what Brown calls a moment of zen before any social media app launches. In January, he tried to convince Apple to sell it in their app store. And they rejected it from the app store because they told us any app that would encourage people to use other apps or their iPhone less was unacceptable for distribution in the app store. They actually said that to you? They said that to us. They did not want us to give out this thing that was going to make people less stuck on their phones. A few days after our story first aired, Apple called to tell us it had a change of heart and made space available in its app store. 
Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Bruno Mars is one of the world's biggest music stars, and he's one of the most driven people we've ever seen. Just 31, he's the product of what he calls a school of rock education, a working-class life of experiences that have taught him the music business. As we first reported in November, none of it came easily. He's been broke, busted, and nearly homeless. To show us how he got to where he is today, Bruno Mars did something he's never done. He shared with us some of the toughest moments of his Hawaiian upbringing and gave us the opportunity to witness his extraordinary skills as a songwriter and producer. We begin with Bruno Mars, the entertainer. This show in Connecticut was his first public concert last year. And he used it as a tune-up for the release of his new album and world tour to follow. On every song and every note, from arenas to halftime of the Super Bowl, he and his band, The Hooligans, perform full throttle. His standards are high because the legends of music set them. I just really care about what people see. I want them to know that I'm, I'm working hard for this. The artists I look up to, like, you know, Michael, Prince, James Brown, you watch them and you understand that they're paying attention to the details of their art, and they care so much about what they're wearing, about how they're moving, about how they're making the audience feel. They're not phoning it in. They're going up there to murder anybody that performs after them or performs before them. That's what I've watched my whole life and admired. He is a throwback. You see it in the choreography on stage. And hear it in the songs themselves, descendants of the generations that came before him. When I listen to your songs, mm -hmm. you can hear all those people that you've listened to yeah. over the years. A lot of people are really quick to say, that song sounds like this, or he's trying to sound like this. And I'm always like, you're damn right I am. That's, how, that's why we're all here. You know, we all grew up idolizing another musician. That's how this works. That's how music is created. The musical education of Bruno Mars began in his hometown, Honolulu, Hawaii. He was born Peter Hernandez to a Puerto Rican father and Filipino mother, parents who were professional musicians, performing together in the tourist showrooms of Waikiki Beach. Their act was called The Love Notes. Hey Bruno, you ready to rock it up? And when Bruno was four years old, his parents included him in the family business. He played Little Elvis, and it's when he first learned he could steal the show. You're 
The little Elvis routine lasted six years, but the lessons of his parents' Vegas-style Waikiki Entertainment Review have lasted a lifetime. You know, it's like school of rock for me, and it was just this kind of razzle-dazzle lifestyle. That's real showbiz. Yeah, show business, you know? Right? If you wasn't hitting those notes and the audience wasn't uh, freaking out, then you weren't doing it right. By the time he turned 12, his parents divorced, and the family band broke up. Money was tight. His four sisters moved in with his mom. He and his brother lived with his dad. On top of this building? On top of this building. Anywhere they could. My dad was just the king of finding these little spots for us to stay that we should never have been staying at. But you were like homeless people. Yeah, no, yeah, for sure. We was in a limousine at once. 1984 limousine. Sleeping in the back of a car on top of buildings and this place. So this is where you lived? Yeah. Paradise Park, a bird zoo where his dad took a job. This was the first time he'd been back here since. Even people who work with him haven't heard this part of his story. Where we were staying at first yeah. didn't have a bathroom. So we'd have to walk across the park to this other spot that had a bathroom. Wow. In the, in, and sometimes in the middle of the night. In the middle of the night. When the park closed, they stayed, moving into this one-room building. Right this here. was your house? It yeah. They lived here for more than two years. Just so people don't think we're crazy, yeah. it did not look like this. It had a roof? It had a roof. It didn't have plants growing inside. It didn't have plants growing inside. I don't know what happened to the roof, but the bed would be right there in the middle. Yeah. And you'd all sleep in one bed? We'd all sleep in one bed. Happy memories? The best. That is kind of amazing. Yeah. And that what you remember about it is not the struggle or the things you didn't have. It's all the things you, you had. Yeah. We had it all, you know. We had each other. And it never felt like it was the end of the world. It's all right, we don't got, we don't got electric today. It's all right, it's temporary, and we're going to figure this out. You know, maybe that's why I have this mentality when it comes to the music. Because I know I'm going fig to figure it out. Just give me some time. As soon as he graduated high school, he left the Waikiki showrooms and Hawaii altogether. You could have stayed here, right? And you very could, happy. Yeah, and made a good living and, and done what your dad did and been a big star in Hawaii. I wanted to go for it. You wanted more. I wanted more. And my family pushed me. And this island pushed me. How? These are my people and this is my culture and I want to represent them. I want people to think of Hawaii and think of palm trees and magical <laughs> islands and and Bruno Mars. So he headed for Los Angeles, where he was quickly signed by Motown Records. Gone was his given name of Peter Hernandez, branding himself Bruno Mars instead. Bruno, his childhood nickname, Mars shooting for the stars. The name stuck, but the record contract didn't. Motown dropped him. I don't blame Motown. I don't, I, I was, sim it was simply, I wasn't ready yet. I think everybody don't know what color I am. It's like, he's not black enough, he's not white enough, he's got a Latin-ass name, but he doesn't have, he doesn't speak Spanish. Well, who are we selling this to? You know, are you making urban music? Are you making pop music? What kind of music are you making? With no hit songs of his own and dead broke, he started over. Got nothing on you. 
writing and producing songs for other artists with friends Ari Levine and Philip Lawrence. They were starving musicians. Inspired by the hustle just to pay for food, they came up with this song. I wanna be a billionaire, so freaking bad. By all of the it led to another record deal of his own. When I see your His career as a songwriter and performer was finally on track. Just you are. About that time, though, he was arrested for possession of two and a half grams of cocaine. From the outside, you really seem to keep it together and to be very professional and, you know, very committed. But you nearly threw it all the way. I did something very stupid. I'm in Las Vegas, Laura. I'm 24 years old. I'm, you know, drinking way more than I'm supposed to be drinking. And it was so early in my career. And I always said that I think it had to happen. That was the reality check I needed. And I, I promised myself that, that, you know, you're never going to read about that again. Headlines for hits, not drug busts, have been his narrative ever since, capped by two Super Bowl halftime performances in three years. And five Grammys, including Record of the Year, for his collaboration with producer Mark Ronson, Uptown Funk. It's the biggest hit in a career full of them. How difficult is it to write a song that's great? Uptown Funk took us almost a year to write. There's songs that taken, that's taken us two hours to write, and we throw them away. Uptown Funk was in the trash can about ten times. Really? Yeah. Why? Because we made a lot of... You know, you could make a left turn and all of a sudden this song is something terrible, embarrassing almost. But you have this one thing that keeps you going. There's one part of the song that feels so good and it makes you want to keep going and it makes you want to keep... How would you just try again? Let's try again. Let's try again. He told us the conception of much of his music begins in this California recording studio. This is it, Law. Over the last two years... He's been on lockdown here, trying to answer the challenge created from his run of big hits, especially Uptown Funk. This album, it was daunting because coming off of Uptown Funk was like the biggest song I've ever been a part of. And I mean, like, all right, now what are you going to do? This is what he came up with. Guess who's back again? His latest album is called 24 Karat Magic. The title song is already another massive hit. He showed us how they built the song from the drums up. That's how it starts. And then? Oh, come on. Come on. <laughs> and then we can put some sparkle on it. Like, put a, put a little magic dust on it. Right? Yes. Feel good yet? Yes. And you add the sauce, the secret sauce. Ready? 
It's easy to see that Bruno Mars loves the only job he's ever wanted. And that he's still driven to get it right. I was built for this, Laura. It's dedicating yourself to your craft. Spending thousands of hours in the studio learning how to write a song, learning how to play different chords, training yourself to sing, you know, to get better and better. Are you there? No, not even close. Good night, Sean. I'm Bill Whitaker. We'll be back next week with another edition of 60 Minutes. If you like 60 Minutes, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Don't miss true crime anytime you want, anywhere you go with the 48 Hours Podcast. Real crimes. Like a John Grisham novel come to life. Real lives. He pointed a gun to me and said, this is the day you die. And he shot me. Real justice. There's some questions that have to be asked and need to be answered. I'm an innocent man, and I hope the whole world can see it now. Catch the latest episodes of 48 Hours wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be, because Survivor 46 is here, and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Devaya Daris. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.